Leviticus chapter 10 is where we left off last week. We didn't quite get out of the 10th chapter together. I have a few more things to touch upon there. At this point, remember Moses and Aaron had gone into the tabernacle of meeting. We're at the inauguration of the priesthood. They came back out. And in the midst of that, as God had promised, uh, the Lord manifested himself in a very powerful way. The glory of the Lord appeared to the people. In the end of chapter 9, it tells us how fire then came out from the presence of the Lord. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire and the very presence of God uh, manifested among the people and the fire, that divine eternal fire of God came forth and ignited the altar, the brazen altar then where the sacrifices and the sacrificial system now would begin to be offered from as the altar is now lit, again, not with any human efforts. There was no human fire. It was no human spark. It was divine in its origin. It was supernatural in the igniting of that fire. And again, I can't help but as we think of that, uh, to think about the reality of how desperately we need in our lives, you know, God's fire, uh, whether it's personally, you know, we use the cliche phrase, we talk about someone uh, and we say, man, that person's really on fire for the Lord. Or tragically, a lot of times as Christians, we find ourselves saying, man, I remember when I used to be so on fire for the Lord. And there's always a, a, a concerning thing when we're talking about our Christian experience uh, and reveling in the past rather than rejoicing in the present of what, what God's doing. But again, as the Lord brings his fire into a life and whether God brings his fire among the life of God's people or as a church, it has to be of the Lord. You know, human ingenuity and our own efforts, um, it's not something that we're going to bring about, but as we cry out to the Lord and we look to Him and something supernatural happens, I think that's where the altar of God can be ignited and there's again fresh passion, a fresh desire for sacrifice and the altar burns fervent again in our hearts personally and the people of God, there begins to be an enthusiasm. And remember, when that fire fell upon the altar, it consumed the entire sacrifice that was there. And it says that the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces in responsive worship. And then, of course, the tragic and unfortunate events we saw directly after that was then Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, uh, it tells us took some type of strange or profane foreign uh, the indication also in the Hebrew is unauthorized fire in their own censors, and it says, which the Lord did not command them. And as a result of them sort of presumptuously sinning in some capacity, something was going on that they were doing, again, whether they were trying to draw attention to themselves, uh, whether they were uh, presumptively intruding into an area of ministry that was not their calling and stepping outside of God's boundaries and trying to approach God on their terms, rather than on God's terms, God in a very strong and disciplinary way, as we see at times at the beginning of some of these new eras and dispensations in Scripture, uh, the fire of God came forth in great displeasure and, and it says devoured them and they died right on the spot. Uh, and then God, of course, made that declaration there in chapter 10, verse 3, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy and before all people, I must be glorified uh, and God sets the standard of his holiness and he in a very sober way sort of reveals his power and his awesomeness among the people and even to Aaron uh, and the other two sons that are remaining regarding this serious 
stewardship of their priestly ministry, that to serve God and to represent him is a very serious stewardship. Uh, it's an awesome responsibility. Again, no matter what we consider our ministry capacity, for them it was a priesthood in that sense. But we, the Bible says, as New Testament Christians, have are all uh, priests of the Lord. The Bible says we're a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, and we have a priestly ministry as well where we represent Jesus and we represent the Lord to this world and we're to stand in the gap for people to help bring people to the Lord. And that's an awesome responsibility. It's nothing we should ever be trivial with or that we should do to try and gain attention or glory for ourselves or in just sort of a casual manner uh, not be honoring the Lord in it the way that we should. So God allows these two sons to be struck dead. And again, the pain and the difficulty as we said last time, that had to have been for Aaron to watch that happen. But it says Aaron held his peace uh, because he realized nonetheless that what God had done was just. And that's a difficult thing when you choose to put honoring God over your own personal emotions. Uh, when you choose to put honoring and loving God over your own natural affections for your family. And any of us who have children, you, you know the love that you have for a child. And imagine that. You know, Aaron, in essence, had to say, God, I love you more than I even do my two sons. And God, I'm willing to let you be right and let you have your way and to honor you than I am to you know, facilitate what I'm feeling in my heart. And remember, Aaron and the other two sons, they weren't even allowed to mourn the typical way that Hebrews did because it would have caused confusion that perhaps what God had just done was wrong. So God told them they had to refrain because they were to put honoring the Lord over their own emotions. And in a sense, uh, learning, as we said, that lesson where sometimes a part of serving the Lord means that in our lives that what we need to do is to stay faithful to the Lord and continue to stay on course. And at times, even when our emotions are contradicting everything within us that's saying quit, give up. And, and sometimes we have to be willing to say, God, obedience has a higher calling in my life than feelings or thoughts or things that I'm experiencing. And in the darkest, hardest hours like this, as Aaron, you know, this tragic thing, he loses his own two sons. But yet, nonetheless, in the midst of that tragedy, he stood faithful to God. Uh, and that's a difficult place to be. It takes a great measure of maturity when we find ourselves in that place at times where we've got to keep pressing forward despite tragedies and hardships and difficulties that we go through that put a great pressure on our emotions and those kind of things. Well, God gave then some further instructions uh, to Aaron. And then ultimately, uh, as a result of that, speaks to Aaron and the other two sons, telling them in this chapter uh, to continue to go forward with the offerings uh, as they were prescribed by God's instruction to do. Look with me down in verse 16. A little bit of a difficulty then begins to happen after these events as the backdrop. It says, then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering. And the reason why is because there was just a major dilemma that took place in the priesthood. The first day on the job, they've already lost two employees. Uh, so this was a serious thing. So Moses is concerned and he looks into how these offerings were being handled according to God's instruction. And he says he sees the sin offering there it was burned up. And again, remember, it was to be eaten. That was the due of the priest. They were to partake of that which was left from the offering to eat it in a holy place. And it says Moses was angry with Eliezer and Ithamar, 
This is the other two sons of Aaron. Notice the Bible says who were left. In other words, look, this is all we have left here. Let's, you know, we need to be careful. These are the only two sons we have left. And he was angry at them saying, verse 17, why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place since it is most holy and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation and to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. And then Aaron speaks up and says to Moses, look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. Again, the, the, these very horrible, in other words, Moses, this is the worst day of my life. I just lost two of my children. And he says, if I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? And verse 20 says, so when Moses heard that, he was content. So Moses here, understandably, is alarmed because there's a little bit of a, uh, an erroneous handling of the way that protocol was given to them of how they were to handle the sin and burnt offering in that day. But it seems from what's being described in the text here and the fact that Moses was content with that explanation, in essence, you have Aaron saying, saying listen, Moses, this was the worst day of our life. We just lost two family members and we weren't even allowed to grieve in a typical way and and you know maybe the emotional overload he just you know we just I did, Moses we didn't have an appetite you know if you've ever been through a really hard time or you know a painful experience you're going through you're under a lot of stress or the death of a loved one and and what are you usually trying to tell people in that situation if it's not look you need have you eaten today you need to eat some because you kind of lose an appetite and that could very likely be the situation or Moses I, how could I eat anything I don't even have an I don't even have an appetite I understand it was allotted to us as our due but Moses think of what's just been falling us this and and it says Moses here graciously when he heard that he settled down and, and he was content with that response and, and he didn't push the issue any further and again just a beautiful picture of again a measure of grace being extended here again it seems that this was not uh, sort of a purposeful transgression it wasn't an intentional deviation this was just something where yes they didn't perfectly in the way they should have whether because of emotional overload or just overlooking because of the stress and the weight of all that they were under in the tragedy that had just happened uh, they didn't perfectly comply with everything that they should have done according to their priestly instructions and, and Moses says you know that, that's okay I don't need to make that big of an issue and hold you to the letter of the law and in a sense there wasn't a purposeful thing it was you know sort of a stumble a fumble how you would be and 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 he, and he extends grace to them. And I love this picture here because in one sense at the beginning of the chapter you have God being very strong in his disciplinary action towards what? Towards rebellious stubborn arrogant transgression. God's very severe with that. But here in a place where there's just a humble shortcoming and, and, and a genuine mistake as someone's under duress and difficulty, you have the grace of God being manifested. You know, the Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I love this beautiful balance being seen here that, that God, you know, he understands, he's compassionate. And at times he extends grace 
in certain ways, especially when people are in the midst of difficulty and they're struggling. And I think there's great wisdom in that, like Moses here. You know, sometimes we, wait, what are you doing? Or that's not accurate, or you're off base there. And, 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 and in a sense, when Moses got a better pulse of, look, this person's struggling, they're hurting, uh, you know, I mean... There are occasions when I have been with people, you know, in the midst of a tragedy or, you know, something's going on, and they they say some really weird things. Look, that's not the moment to say, look, now that's not theologically correct. And and how dare you transgress with it? No. That's a moment to just extend grace. They're upset. They're hurt. They're overwhelmed. Just There's a time to just extend grace. There are certain things to take issue over. And there are other times, I think, when we just esteem love and we extend grace, and that is the compassionate and the right thing to do. And that's why it says when Moses heard that explanation, he says, look, if your heart wasn't going to be in it, you didn't have it, he said, I understand. He was content. He said nothing more about the issue. Now, as we come to chapter 11 and we begin to move forward in these chapters ahead, some of you may find them interesting, some humorous. Others, if you read ahead, say, well, I'm, I think I have something to do the next few Wednesday nights. Uh, because we're going to come now to a section in the book of Leviticus where God gives instructions regarding guidelines that were to be observed by the Jewish people in their everyday living. He's going to give guidelines and instructions regarding their diet and the dietary codes they were to live by. He's going to give instructions and guidelines regarding childbirth and how they were to handle that specifically. Instructions regarding death and how to deal with a dead body, whether of an animal or of a person. He's going to give regulations regarding hygiene and sanitation and, and bodily fluids and, and all types of things here. Uh, and chapter 11 now really gives to us the implementation of the dietary code that God gave to the Jewish people. Uh, and again, as we look at these things, part of this realize is, is God is indicating that he wants to be engaged and involved in the everyday affairs of his people. God actually cared about what they ate. He cared about their childbirth. He cared about what was going on in their times when they went through death or sickness and, and you know, their hygiene and sanitation and being what and, and God was interested in the everyday affairs of life. I think a lot of times we want to disconnect. And we think, well, God's interested in like the stuff that happens on a Sunday morning or in a worship meeting. And it's kind of like that's our God time. That's the spiritual thing. But somehow God's detached and disconnected from everyday affairs. Now listen, God wants to be involved in everyday affairs, every activity. He wants to be included in every part of our life. He's interested in it. He's concerned. He has a sense of, of interest in being involved in everyday affairs. And chapter 11 gives to us now, first, this dietary code for the Jewish people. And again, a few reasons as we go into this. No doubt that God was giving this to the Jewish people. First of all, it becomes very evident if you study or research some of these things, as some have done extensively. Obviously, there were practical purposes and benefits to God giving this dietary code to the people. The dietary code he gives here offers protection and health benefits. 
Uh, remember, when they left, they left from Egypt, which was a very bizarre place with all kinds of pagan practices, health-wise, food-wise. Uh, they were then heading into the land of Canaan, which, again, was another place. And if you research and do some his historical research, you can see they had all kinds of bizarre things that they ate in concoctions when people were sick. So there was a lot of really bizarre practices that were very grotesque and unsafe and unhealthy. So God gives the Jewish people these instructions, no doubt, to provide to them some sanitary instructions to avoid disease, to avoid certain sicknesses that they could experience, that, and as well to eat in these, some of these ways granted them some health advantages. We know that. There was a, a book that was written years ago. Some of you may have read it or be familiar with it. Uh, that was done by a, a, a man called None of These Diseases uh, by a man named Macmillan. And basically, he wrote the book using these instructions that God gave to the Jewish people and how some of these things are no doubt very clearly given to help avoid certain potential sicknesses and diseases that could come uh, as a result of if one were to ignore them. Now, another reason, and I think really the primary reason as we look at these things that God gave these instructions here and regarding their dietary code, wasn't just the health benefit alone as much as it was for the purpose of separation, that it was a way when they ate in this manner, according to these dietary codes, it allowed them to differentiate themselves from all the other peoples and nations around them. Uh, it let them be shown as set apart. In fact, when we come to the end of chapter 11, that's the thing that God says. He says, look, I'm the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourself with these things. In other words, he's saying, look, the reason I'm telling you to do this is so that you'll be set apart, that you'll be seen as different and distinct from all the other peoples among you. And how interesting, because is it not true that food and eating... It either separates people or it joins people, right? It does one or the other. I mean, case in point, you're with a, a, a group of individuals. Hey, w what do you want to eat? Who, who wants to eat Chinese? And if, hey, I like Chinese, I like Chinese. Well, guess what? Those people are going to go to a restaurant. And the people who don't like Chinese food are going to say, ah, no thanks, I think I'll pass. Or who likes Mexican? Oh, I like Mexican. So food can join people if they like the same thing and they, and they enjoy it. By the same token, there are certain people who say, like, I, I, I don't do Mexican, or I don't do Chinese, or I don't do meat, I'm just a bit. So food either, it, it does either join people, or at times it, it, it separates people. And here, God gave them this dietary code that as they observed it, it was a way for them, as they lived according to these ceremonial regulations by what they ate and did not eat, it was a way to be... Uh, impressed upon their minds, we're not like other people. We're not. We're the people of God. We're different than other people. And you know what? That was true. They weren't supposed to be like other people. They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be set apart in the way that they live for God. And it was a way for others to clearly recognize those people are different. They're different than us. And again, as a child of God, God wants his people not in an awkward or, or a, uh, you know, a, a uncomfortable, weird way, but God wants his people to be seen as different, to be seen as distinct. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Again, there's a difference between light and darkness. 
And, and there is that measure whereby God wanted them to be separate, and that was certainly part of, if not probably the primary purpose for this dietary code and the way in which they would live. And it provided opportunity as well to demonstrate their dedication and devotion to the Lord through their obedience or lack thereof to these things. Now, let me just say as we jump into this, remember, as New Testament Christians, the Bible is clear we are not under the law from a regulatory standpoint. If you want to follow these dietary codes for your own health purposes, that's great. But listen, you're not under the law from a spiritual perspective in the sense of how God was operating among the Jewish people and under the Old Covenant. The Bible says in Romans 10 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the New Testament speaks of this continuously. Colossians 2, verse 13 to 23 speak of that reality. First uh, Timothy 4, verses 1 and 4 Paul, 1 through 4, Paul says, look, every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it's received you know, w with, with prayer and thanksgiving for it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Jesus in Mark chapter 7 speaks of, about that same issue, how foods don't defile a person. So, so be careful. You know, there are some who get a hype. Oh, that's what we need. We need to go back to the to the kosher dietary code. And and look, and that's wonderful. There are whole spiritual books and platforms and doctrines. But that does not make you more righteous. If you want to live that way and eat that way, God bless you. But it does not add anything to you in a spiritual sense. Uh, and it's not even something that God mandates or requires of us. Now. He begins, verse 1, by saying, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say, notice, These are the animals which you may eat among the animals that are on the earth. So these are the permissible type animals. Verse 3, Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, so there's one characteristic, that any animal that has a divided hoof, uh, and also having cloven hooves and chewing the cud that you may eat. So two requirements were necessary to determine if it was an acceptable or a clean animal to eat. First of all, it had to have a cloven hoof or a divided hoof, like a camel, things of that, you know, that nature. And it then also had to have uh, the capacity in the way it ate that it chewed the cud. And if you know what that is, chewing the cud is basically a reference to an animal that, that has either multiple stomachs or a way in which it digests whereby it eats something at first and then it brings it back up uh, and then goes back through the eating and digestion process more than once to, to draw out as much nutrients as possible out of the food. So this, these were the two characterizing things that had to exist. It had to be an animal that chewed the cud, and it had to be an animal that had a divided hoof. Now, just by way of spiritual application, isn't it interesting? What determined an animal's cleanness, what determined a clean animal or its cleanliness, was how it walked and what it ate. And I think, boy, isn't that interesting? What determined cleanliness was how it walked and what it ate. And I think there's a, certainly a spiritual application there for us. Oftentimes what determines the cleanliness, the healthiness, the acceptableness of things from a spiritual perspective are directly dependent upon how we walk and what we eat or what we ingest or digest. So these were the two requirements, and then we just begin to get some expansion. Notice verse 
uh, four, he says, nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, notice, didn't qualify because, notice, it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves and is unclean to you. The rock hyrax or the coney uh, is what basically is being described there uh, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves it's unclean to you. So it, these, again, chewed the cud, but it didn't have the cloven hoof. So it couldn't just have one of the characteristics. It had to have both. Uh, the hare, verse 6, or what we might call the rabbit, uh, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. Verse 7, also the swine, or the pig, certainly we know that, no bacon, that doesn't fly, uh, though it divides the hoof, Having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, therefore it is unclean to you, and their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch, they are unclean to you. So, again, it couldn't have just one of the qualifications, it had to have simultaneously both. So he mentioned some of these unclean animals, the rabbit, the, 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 the swine, and again, from a health perspective, we know these are certain creatures that can bring about uh, things like yellow fever, trichinosis, if they're not prepared properly. So again, what's God doing? He's graciously taking into consideration the hygiene and the health of his people. We know, you know, if pork's not cooked a certain way, there's tremendous danger with things like trichinosis. So again, God's just guarding and looking out like a loving father for his children. But keep in mind, this is why, if you want to write in your Bible or your notes here in Mark chapter 5, Remember when Jesus goes into the area of Gadara and it says that there are a bunch of people there uh, who were pig farmers. Uh-uh, what are you doing being a pig farmer? Pigs are unclean animals. And remember, there was a demoniac there and Jesus cast the demon out of that man who had multiple demons. And what does he do? He casts the demons and he says that they, they enter into the herd of swine and they rush down the hill, remember, and they uh, commit suicide or suicide. I'm sorry. You always got to get that once or twice every 10 years when it's in the Bible. Um, so they, they commit suicide. And then remember, the people are so angry at Jesus. Why? Because he destroyed their profitable business but why did Jesus have no problem destroying their business? Because this, you, you shouldn't be engaged in this. You're doing something you shouldn't be doing anyway. So, again, we see how the Old and New Testament connect together. Verse 9, we begin to get some more instruction. These you may eat of all that are in the water. So now we're coming to uh, aquatic animals and creatures. Whatever is in the water that has fins and scales. So it was acceptable to eat any type of a aquatic creature with fins or scales, whether in the seas or rivers, you may eat. But in all the seas or the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all things that move in the water or anything living which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you, and you shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination, and whatever is in the water that does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. So, if it had fins, if it had scales, enjoyable seafood, free to indulge. But what God puts a restriction on here, and I'm glad I'm not a, a Jew in that sense, no shellfish. Uh, so that would exclude crabs and uh, clams and, and lobster. Aren't you thankful for Jesus? I am, yeah. Uh, but again, we also know some of those shellfish 
at times can emit poisons that can be very dangerous and detrimental to people's health. Uh, a lot of those creatures, again, they're bottom feeders, so they're involved in all types of you know, bacteria and type things that they're exposed to where many times you know, fish are swimming freely through the water. So uh, again, God's setting some of these things out for them, but we see also some of the health advantages in them as well. Uh, verse 13, these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. The Hebrew here literally is flying things. So again, because when we get to the bat, you say, but the bat's not a bird. Well, the Hebrew says flying things, okay? It's not a, a misinterpretation there if you know your uh, science, so you don't kind of question God's word there. These you shall regard as an abomination among all those flying things. They shall not be eaten. Here's what you couldn't eat. The eagle... The vulture, the buzzard, anyone disappointed yet? <laughs> every, the kite, the falcon after its kind, every raven after its kind. You couldn't eat the ostrich, you couldn't eat the short-eared owl, and you couldn't eat the seagull. Bummer. Yeah, I mean, I like to strangle a few seagulls, but I don't think I'd ever, you know, that does not bother me one bit there. I mean, I've never had a temptation to eat a seagull, ever. <laughs> Kill a few, yes, but never to, to eat one. And then multiple different types you see of owls from verse 17 uh, down through verse 19. Also the stork uh, and the heron after its kind and the hoopoe, whoever that is, uh, and the bat. Uh, so these were things that were on the restricted list. Verse 20, in case you were tempted, all flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Yet, these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours. So, if you make sure that he's creep around on all fours. Those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth, these you may eat. So, here you go. Here's your opportunity. You could eat the locust after its kind and the destroying locust after its kind. They were allowed the Jews to eat the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. So these, the locusts, grasshoppers, crickets, these were acceptable insects that they could partake of in the dietary code. Now, again, very interesting, because when we go to the New Testament, we think of John the Baptist. And you remember John the Baptist, this ascetic man, this uh, sort of fiery uh, preacher who was the forerunner of Jesus. And it says John lived out in the wilderness and his diet, remember, was what? Locusts and wild honey. So John, hey, he was eating according to, it was kind of gross from most people's perspective. I always picture John the Baptist as kind of this really gruff guy probably looked some ways like the beards of the guys on the Duck Dynasty show nowadays and he probably had like sticky grasshopper legs and and locust you know little carcasses in his beard because of the way that he ate those kind of things but he was eating according to kosher Jewish dietary restrictions and he had the freedom to do those very things verse 24 he says these you shall become or shall become unclean Again, notice now, whoever touches the carcass of any of those things, so again, if, if you found any of those animals that were unclean that were dead, if you just came in contact with the carcass, then you would be unclean until the evening. You had to wash your clothes, and you would be unclean until the evening, ceremonially unclean. Verse 27, and whatever goes on its paws among all kinds of animals that go on all fours, those are unclean to you. 
Whoever touches any such carcass as well shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any such carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It is unclean to you. So again, on the restricted list, any animals you could not eat that had paws. So in this sense, it's referring to the obvious. No kitties, uh, no dogs, again, uh, you know, no lions, tigers, bears, oh my, you know, just, these were restricted. Couldn't eat them, could not partake of those particular animals, or you were not to touch the carcass as you came upon them. Again, keep in mind, in the days of Samson in the book of Judges. When Samson, remember, stumbles upon the dead carcass of that animal and he scoops the honey out of it that had been generated somehow, maybe by a bee's nest or something, he, in a sense, was defiling himself. He was satisfying his sensual appetite in the moment, but he was defiling himself ceremonially because God said these animals were not to be eaten, nor were they to be touched if you stumbled upon their dead carcass or you would render yourself ceremonially unclean for the day before God. Verse 29, These shall also be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth. Couldn't eat a mole, couldn't eat Mickey Mouse, couldn't eat the large lizard after its kind, the gecko, oh my, he was in the Bible before he was an insurance guy, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. So they were uh, off the dinner list. These are unclean, verse 31, to you among all that creep, and whoever touches them uh, will be unclean until evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead. So now if one of these animals died and their carcass fell upon something, they would in a sense defile it. Uh, and they were to take necessary precautions again from hygiene, sanitation perspectives so that they didn't get sick or diseased. So if anything of any one of those animals falls being dead, it shall be unclean. Whether it is any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack, whatever the item is in any work which is done, it must be put in water. It had to be cleansed and washed to destroy any germs or bacteria upon it. And it shall be unclean until evening. You were to set it aside and refrain from using it. Verse 33, any earthen vessel into which any of them falls, you shall break. And whatever is in it shall be unclean. In such a vessel, any edible food upon which the water falls becomes unclean. And any drink that may be drunk from it becomes unclean. And everything on which a part of any such carcass falls shall be unclean, whether it's an oven or a cooking stove, it shall be broken down for they are unclean and shall be unclean to you. So again, the earthen vessels, uh, because they were porous material, uh, the germs, the bacteria, again, God in his incredible wisdom, knowing that bacteria and germs in microscopic form could be lodged in these things. God said, look, if that's the case, if you find a dead mouse or a rat or something in an earthen vessel, uh, look, don't be cheap. Say, oh, we can still salvage it, honey. We can still salvage it. God says, no, break it. <laughs> Get rid of it. Uh, don't take a chance. Just trust me. I'll give you a new jar. He says, just break the vessel for your own sanitation and health purposes. Verse 36, Nevertheless, a spring or cistern in which there's plenty of water, running water, so the uh, again, the amount of uh, the water would uh, dissipate anything dangerous, that shall be clean. 
but whatever touches any carcass shall be unclean. And if a part of any such carcass falls on planting seed, which is to be sown, it's still dry at this point, uh, then it was still usable seed. But if water had been put on the seed, the idea is if it had began to in any way flower or blossom, any greenery began to sprout where there was life on that vegetable or plant, then it would become unclean. Verse 39, And any animal which you may eat uh, dies, he who touches its carcass shall be unclean until evening, and he who eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And he who also carries its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. So if you had to move the carcass, in a sense, you were rendered ceremonially unclean. You were to, out of respect, to not defile others or defile the things of God. You were to refrain from any type of religious or ceremonial activity for the day. You were to stay back. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination, it shall not be seen. So for ladies, creeps, stay away. It's very clear there. Just keep away from them. Uh, Verse 42, whatever crawls on its belly. So again, this would include things like snakes and so forth. Whatever goes on all fours uh, or whatever has many feet among all creeping things, centipedes, millipedes, these type of creatures, uh, these you shall not eat for they're an abomination. And God comes now to his conclusion, verse 43, you shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest, notice, lest you be defiled by them. God does not want his people to be defiled. It's a very clear spiritual principle in the heart of God. He does not want his people to become defiled by anything that would be seen as unclean in his sight. Verse 44, here's the crux of the matter. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy. For I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy And this is the law of the animals and birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between clean and unclean, between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. So God here says, in in a sense, by way of conclusion, verses 44 and 45 here, what the crux of the matter is, he's like, I'm the Lord your God. And in the same way, I'm holy, I'm different. There's none like me. I'm God and there's none else like me. I'm separate. I'm set apart. God says in the same way as my children. Again, we say like father, like son. And and, and how the the son manifests attributes of the father. That's just genetic. Well, God says from a divine perspective, as your father, I'm set apart. I'm holy. I'm different. I'm distinguished. I'm set apart from other things. God says, I want you to be set apart. I want you to live set apart. And part of my heart, he says, I'm bringing you out of, notice, out of the land of Egypt. I'm separating you from what once was a part of your life, that you might live differently and and live distinctly. And again, as as we look at these things and we see God's reasoning behind some of them, I I think there's a a summary application in some way that we can draw from this. You know, two things specifically I would draw to our attention from chapter 11. The the first thing being this, by way of application, is that God's people 
are supposed to live differently than the rest of the world. God's people are supposed to live differently than the rest of the world. This dietary code was to make them realize that themselves and to make others recognize that about them as well. Again, read Ephesians chapter 4 where God says, look, put off that former conduct. You don't live the way that you used to live, the way pagans and gen You live differently now. The world lies. You don't lie. The world steals. You don't steal. The world gets angry, and it's anger, it sins and hurts and harms people. God says, you get angry, but you don't have to sin when you get angry. He says, look, the world, there's bitterness and wrath and anger and rage, and they hold animosity and they hold grudges. And, and he says, but listen, as a Christian, as a child of God, you get hurt, you get legitimately offended, you get wounded, and things happen. But he says, but you forgive even as God in Christ forgave you. Again, we live differently. There should be something that distinguishes us from the world. The church is the most effective when it is the least like the world. I understand we want to connect with the world and all that, but sometimes we make a grievous mistake where we want to so be like the world that who notices us? We're just like the world. There should be a difference about the way we live. People say, look, the way you think about things, it's different than the way that we think about things. Your reasoning, your decision-making, the way you speak, the way you handled yourself in that situation, it's different. You don't do certain things that we do, and you do certain things that we don't do. And it distinguishes us, but that is the thing that makes us shine as salt and light. I understand there's nothing wrong with you know, blending in or trying to you know, live according to fashion or those kind of things. But by the same token, you are supposed to be different. That's part of being a child of God. And that's part of what keeps us effective the way God wants us to be and gives us a chance to draw other people to us. Secondly, I would say this. As we look at this chapter of a way of application for ourselves, what things we ingest or don't ingest is going to affect our condition as well. What things we ingest or what things we refrain from ingesting, and understand what I mean by this, morally, spiritually, visually, audially, what we hear in our ears, what we ingest or refrain from ingesting is going to influence our condition as well. I don't know about you, but my eyes have an appetite. And my ears have an appetite. The Bible says in Proverbs, the eyes of man are never satisfied. And our eyes and our ears tend to be, in a sense, like the mouth that feeds the soul and the mind and the spirit and the inward man. What goes in our eye gate and in our ears tends to be the way whereby we ingest things that then affect our condition mentally and spiritually and the condition of our inward person. So, hey, great thing by way of application to ask yourself tonight, are you monitoring your diet? Are you monitoring your diet in the sense of what you're looking at or not looking at? What you allow yourself to look at or you don't allow yourself? Are, are you monitoring your diet in regards to what things you're letting get pumped in your eye gate and ear gate, media and you know, television and books and magazines, because those things will affect your condition. And just like a person who wants to be healthy physically and so they diet, there are certain, hey, these are the healthy things, so I'm going to, I'm going to pursue that. And these are the things that, that don't 
you know, contribute to good health, so I'm going to have to refrain from some of those things. And I think it's important that we take that into consideration as it has an effect upon our lives. Well, let's look at chapter 12 together. It's just a short chapter, and we'll close up. Uh, these are God's guidelines regarding giving birth or when a woman gives birth. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity. And the idea is in the same way of her menstrual cycle it's referring to verse 3 and on the eighth day the flesh of the male's foreskin shall be circumcised and she shall then continue in the blood of her purification for another 33 days and she shall not touch any hallowed thing nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled so here god now gives restrictions and guidelines regarding when a child is born both a male and a female and notice, for a birth of a male child, for a total of 40 days, the mother was considered ceremonially unclean. Now, please understand, God is not teaching here that somehow the sexual experience between a husband and a wife is filthy or dirty or unclean. God gave the gift of sex, and he gave it for procreation as well as a part of it on top of for pleasure and bonding for a husband and a wife. God is not teaching here, as some would like to say, that children and babies are unclean or defiled or therefore it's okay to dispose of them because they defile. That's not what the Bible is teaching here. That contradicts the rest of the river. God was giving, if nothing else here, a time of respite and break for that mommy who just delivered a child and a newborn baby where basically for about a month's time she detached from everything and had time to rest and refrain from her regular activities you know, didn't have to maybe bring the child around other things that could, you know, influence or cause germs or sickness for the child, you know, because she, in a sense, kept back and just had a time of rest and respite to recuperate and to recover. We'll see ultimately at the end of the chapter, she does have to make atonement for the child that she gives birth to. And we'll talk in a minute about probably what the primary purpose of that very thing was. Now, verse five says, if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification for 66 days. So here a total of 80 days. It was double uh, for that of having uh, a male child. So again, people look at, well, what is that supposed to mean? I have no idea. I legitimately have no idea. And I read commentaries and hear other people try and comment on this. Well, the reason why is this and that. Honestly... I think it's all speculation. I have no idea why. It's one of those places I put a question mark on my Bible. I don't know why. God says this long if you have a boy, this long if you have a girl. I'm sure God had a reason. I trust him. He's a righteous and a wise God. There was some purpose. I'm not going to touch it. I would like to keep some of my friends and not drive more people out of the church. So I'm not going to address that. I have no idea. This was God. Sometimes God gives instruction and we don't understand the reason why. We just obey. In faith, Lord, I don't understand why you give that instruction, but if you give it, I'll obey it. So God here gives this. 40 days for the male, 80 days for the female. Notice verse 3, I forgot to touch upon it there. On the eighth day, the male child was to be circumcised. Remember, that was from Genesis 17. That was part of the requirement for a Jewish male. God gave the right of circumcision. And I just want to point out here quickly God's mercy in this and God's wisdom. The male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day. 
Research has shown to us, studies have proven, that the highest blood clotting capacity for our entire lifespan is between our 7th and 10th day of life. Up to the seventh day, that's why today when they circumcise a male child, they give them a shot of vitamin K or something to help with the blood clotting capacity when they want to do the circumcision and send them home. And of course, we know circumcision does have health benefits and advantages as well. But how amazing is that? Here, God knowing these things, he says on the eighth day, because that's the safest time for the welfare of that little child is when this surgical procedure was done. Again, which just, it was an outward sign that marked the Jews as a covenant people of God uh, as God gave this rite of circumcision to them. Uh, verse 6 says, When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall then bring to the priest a lamb of the first years of burnt offering and a young pigeon and a turtle dove and a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And she shall offer it there before the Lord to make atonement for her. And she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. And this is the law for her who is born a male or a female. She had to give the offering to make atonement for either sex of the child that was born. And she is not, if she's not able to bring a lamb, again, if she was less fortunate, then God made a provision. She could bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. And so the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. So notice at the end of that time of 40 days or 80 days, it was required for her to re-engage back into the life of worship and you know the, the experience, whether at the tabernacle or the temple, to worship with the people of God, that an offering be made of atonement. Now, what was the purpose of this? I think in a most simple way, what God was trying to convey to that mother, she had to make atonement for bringing a child into the world, is that God wanted to impress very strongly upon both parents' minds, you have just brought another sinner into this world. And that little sinner, cute as a button as they may be, is just as wicked and depraved as you are, and so you have a serious responsibility on your hand to do what you can to deter the power of their flesh in raising them properly and to lead them to the Lord as quickly as possible because you've just brought another unregenerate sinner into the world that contributes ultimately to the sin of humanity that's committed before God. And I think God was impressing this upon the minds of the parents and even notice there was a cost involved in raising that child. They had to pay a cost. Luke chapter 2 tells us that that provision of the turtle dove, remember, is what Mary and Joseph, if you read Luke 2, take advantage of, which shows us that Jesus' parents did not come from a wealthy family because they took the provision of the two turtle doves when they brought Jesus to the temple to present him according to the guidelines of the Levitical code. But again, here God just driving home these realities, the incredible wisdom of God wanting humanity to understand even in everyday affairs the spiritual realities of things the responsibility of a parent again that they would present their child that they had to have that impression on their mind and again the cost as they made it and I tell you this let me say this from a parenting perspective I think parents need to be willing to pay a cost to raise their children. And I'm not talking about having enough money to get them the Nikes instead of the Walmart Bobos. 
I'm talking about the greater cost that says, you know what, even if I can't afford the 85 hours to get you the Nike Airs that makes you cool in front of everybody, I am willing to pay the cost to sacrifice my time and my energies and my efforts to give you the thing that is way more valuable, which is to work with you to cultivate your character and to help deter your flesh and to lead you to Christ and to pray with you and to give you a godly example and to point you in the ways of the Lord because you know what? That is the stuff that really has value and matters in the long process.